The handle was tried a number of times, and every single time the Germans assumed that someone was relieving themselves inside. Wow. Little realising there was actually four enemy soldiers hiding inside the lavatory for three whole days. Hello and welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast on Second World War, Prisoner War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And this episode is really a follow-on from the cliffhanger where we left last uh, episode with... The Lieutenant. The Lieutenant. Dean Drummond. I was nearly giving it away then, because, yes, in part two, he's not a lieutenant. So, just a quick recap, Mm -hmm. I think, then. So, he was a member of the 11th SAS Battalion and had been doing some covert operations, shall we say, in Italy mm-hmm. and had, Colossus. that's it and he successfully escaped on his fifth attempt at getting to Switzerland and then got out through the lines uh, down through Marseille and then a trawler to Gibraltar and then home from Gibraltar mm-hmm. which normally is where we've left episodes but as we said in the last one his escaping time was not over so I think we need to look at what he did next. Mm. So upon his return, he obviously carried on in the army, was still very much at war, and he went off to be the brigade signals officer in the same battalion, which was by now in Africa. Okay. And he spent most of 1943 in Africa, and at the end of 1943, he was promoted to become a major. With that came an appointment to the second-in-command of the 1st Airborne Division, and he came back to the UK. As we well know, in 1944, the Allies are massing in preparation for the invasion of continental Europe. Mm-hmm. Now, this was going to involve a large multiple of forces. However, the 1st Airborne Division was being held in reserve in case there were problems establishing a beachhead they could could then be brought in. So, so he was not actually deployed at D-Day. Itself. He was not deployed at D-Day itself. Okay. However, there was a little bit of action not long after D-Day, which he very much was involved with. Mm. So, we're going to have a little look at Market Garden. Excellent. Now, I can well imagine most of our listeners have heard of Market Garden, and Market Garden in itself is a massive subject. I mean, it's been the subject of feature films Mm -hmm. and many many books so we could talk for an hour all about market garden but i won't let's just touch on it let's do some top line stuff just to set the context of this escape market garden is effectively the middle couple of weeks of september Mm -hmm. which is several months after the landings in normandy Mm -hmm. and roughly where things have got to geographically is a push had been made into france and up into belgium there had been an awful lot of very heavy fighting but effectively the allies are looking to try and break away and create a path into germany Germany itself. Now, there's a big area of Germany, which is the Ruhr, the industrial mm. area. And the idea was is that if you could knock out the industrial area, or at least encircle it so that it became more difficult for the Germans to use that as a supply, then you're going to be cutting off their ability to fight, whilst also forming a very nice little route into Germany. Which is not a bad theory. It's not a bad theory, but the problem is it's a big push. Mm-hmm. So the idea of Market Garden was to effectively push forward 60 miles around the northern borders of the Ruhr, taking the Rhine and getting up as far as the Dutch-German border in order to then push straight into Germany from there, which makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. But 60 mile advance is a very difficult thing when you're trying to push through a working front. 
So market garden is in two parts. Mm-hmm. Market being the airborne assault. Garden is the follow-up ground assault that links the line from where they were at the start of the operation to those forward people north of Arnhem. Okay. That's the basis of market garden. Now, to establish this and to get it, they had to capture nine bridges and then secure the routes to them in order to have the ability to cross heavy armour into the northern part of the Ruhr and then onwards into Germany. We could look at this for its level of success and many people have argued over a long period of time how successful this is. I think in general, Market Garden was successful in that it liberated Eindhoven and Nijmegen, which were then held. Mm -hmm. But as we well know, it didn't accomplish all of its tasks in that it did not secure Arnhem, so it did not completely secure the routes over the Rhine at that time. There are various reasons that people have put down over the years for why they didn't make their final goals. But what we have to bear in mind is that this was ultimately the largest aerial assault to date in the war. Mm -hmm. However, it failed on poor intelligence, it failed on weather, it failed on a struggle with resupplying those troops that were at the forward point, and it also failed on communications. Now it's very interesting that when the plans for Market Garden happened to arrive on Dean Drummond's desk, he raised exactly these points, because obviously as part of the Signal Corps originally, communications was a big thing, and he had pointed out that effectively their planned drop zone was some eight miles from where they needed to be, mm-hmm. and with the equipment that they had been given, which had to be hand carried, the range was not as good as the sets that were potentially able to be strapped to jeeps and things like that, which would have required more hardware, more gliders to get in. So already he was saying, we're going to be on the back foot going on this. There's a compromise that's taken place. There's a big compromise. And communications are suffering as a result. Exactly. So we can see already that in this particular situation, he had some concerns about going in on Operation Market Garden, which were effectively borne out now with 80 years of hindsight. But he still went, and that's why he still interests us for his operational endeavours. Yes. So he was dropped on the first day at Market Garden on the 17th of September 1944. And he actually states, I was dropped by parachute with my battalion at 1400 hours on the 17th of September, about eight miles west of Arnhem. Now, eight miles is quite a distance to be dropped from your actual target. And particularly when communication's involved and the communication doesn't have the range that he's looking for here, this is an issue. And it's not like he's being dropped in open countryside. He's being dropped to get into a major city, Mm -hmm. which is heavily laden with the enemy. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be travelling massive distances first. So it's a big demand. Eight miles is a long way to try and travel. And street fighting is notoriously difficult and slow. Nonetheless, he was able to make some progress, and he states, On the 18th of September, at 1700 hours, Lance Corporal Turner, two privates, and myself took shelter in an empty shop in Arnhem near the pontoon bridge. Now, he just describes it as the pontoon bridge, but this is the bridge of Arnhem. The bridge. The as famous in, bridge. A bridge too far. Yes. The reason I mention this is not just to make a cultural link to a well-known movie about Market Garden, about Arnhem itself. But in actual fact, there is actually a character in this film which is based upon Dean Drummond. Now, the character's name is Major Steele, so he does not go by the same name, and he's played by Stephen Moore. But for those who have seen the film, he is the character who raises the communication concerns. Ah, right. In the film, they don't cover any of his escape experience. No, they don't. So we will. (laughs) Yes. They're now located in an empty shop near this bridge at Arnhem. And he states later that evening, so this is the evening of the 18th of September, so this is the day after the drop, 
two German snipers posted themselves on the roof of the shop with an anti-aircraft gun placed just outside. Now, not wanting to be overrun and captured again, the four of them take shelter in the lavatory of this building and were there for three days. Wow. Now, the lavatory door was locked. He states in his book that the handle was tried a number of times and every single time the Germans assumed that someone was relieving themselves inside. Wow. Little realising that it was actually four enemy soldiers hiding inside the lavatory for three whole days. And in essence, they were waiting for an opportunity to try and get out because they were effectively trapped in this building in which there's German snipers and an anti-aircraft gun located just outside the front door so that it's not an easy get out. However, around midnight on the 21st of September, so three days later, they were able to get out while the Germans were asleep. Now, they made their way to the Rhine River yeah. and the four of them swam across. But of course, the Rhine is a big and powerful river yeah. and they got separated in the current. So in essence, although all four actually managed to get across the river, he is by himself on the other side of the river, completely separated from the three other men that he's just spent three days hiding in a lavatory with, mm -hmm. and is attempting to make his way back to Allied-held ground, wherever that may be. Yeah, because there's still, at this point, there's still three more days of fighting. To exactly. It didn't yeah. end until the 25th. No, exactly. So he says that he walked west and as he was walking along, he fell into a slit trench. Now, in actual fact, he goes into more detail in his book because by the time he had managed to get out of the river, dried himself off and started making his way back to Allied lines, he actually realised he had badly timed his escape and had arrived at the German lines just as they were waking up to start manning the defences again in anticipation of a potential dawn raid. Yeah. So he's timed this quite badly. Not necessarily his fault, it's no. just unfortunate. Yeah. However, having fallen into a slit trench, he's almost immediately set upon by the German defending that slit trench, and he pulls his pistol and shoots him dead at point-blank range. Right. Immediately after that, his German mate arrives in this slit trench. And Dean Drummond is quite open about this because he, he basically states, having just killed his fellow soldier in cold blood at point-blank range, he was only too happy to be taken prisoner because the alternative was being shot dead by a rifle fire immediately. Yeah. Not not necessarily lined up against the wall, but just as part of the... the retribution. The retribution, the battle that's ongoing. Yeah, because it is hand-to-hand -hand street fighting. It is hand-to-hand -hand street fighting. And so he's quite grateful to be taken prisoner at this stage. So having been taken prisoner on the morning of the 22nd of September, he was taken first to a church in Arnhem where he met several others of his own division. So from the church at Arnhem, they were then taken to a prisoner war camp, which was being guarded by the 9th SS Panzer Division. Now this was a temporary camp, not a permanent camp, and had been set up in a house at a place called Velp, which is nearby. He states that he arrived at the camp around about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Now this camp was being used, as, as I say, as a temporary holding camp. It was also being used for the interrogation of prisoners of war. But of course, when you've just dropped thousands of parachutists into the middle of occupied Netherlands, there's going to be quite a few prisoners of war taken. So there was a, a lot of Allied soldiers at this house. Now, what's quite interesting, and he states this more in the book than in his report, is having previously been a prisoner of war and successfully escaped, he essentially is telling everyone, look, the sooner you attempt to escape, the better your opportunity. Yeah. He's really encouraging people to go for it. And they, of course, are saying, no, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll wait for the right opportunity. Now, what's really interesting about this point that he makes is actually Basil Embry made exactly the same point about how the sooner your opportunity to escape, the better you had the chance. 
not to wait because there's no such thing as a perfect opportunity so no. don't wait for it and when you're in a camp then there's a whole different system going exactly and, and a permanent so. prisoner war camp of course has far greater security than a temporary prisoner war camp as we're about to discover so while all the others are waiting for this perfect opportunity he's scouting around this house checking the perimeters looking to see what hidey holes there were all this sort of stuff he's actively looking for an escape because of course he's probably the most experienced escaper in the entirety of this holding camp oh completely and he states that he manages to find a cupboard in this house the door of which was covered by wallpaper now this is quite key because the door itself was actually flush with the wall so it was built into the wall like a hidden priest's hole from medieval times sort of thing pretty similar yeah essentially yes this was built into the wall and because it had been covered in wallpaper and was flush with the wall it was almost unnoticed and what he actually ended up doing was first of all gathering up supplies so water food that sort of thing but then he actually managed to lock it from the inside mm-hmm. and so on the 23rd of september so the day after he's arrived here he enters the cupboard locks it from the inside with his supplies and waits and he remained there for 13 days no i'm deadly serious so having already waited in a lavatory for three days he stayed in this cupboard for 13 days now the for the first five days of his experience there he listened to nothing but the germans interrogating his fellow prisoners of war so all he heard was the interrogation taking place and he actually states on more than one occasion he heard prisoners giving far more information than they were supposed to give far more than the name rank and number they had been instructed to give and he says that had they actually come close to giving real military intelligence away he would have jumped out and stopped them there and then but luckily they didn't stray that far and he stayed there however you may be asking yourself why did he not just wait until later on in the process he didn't have to wait 13 days the reason being was they were taking a record of everyone who was there and so he actually hid himself in the cupboard before a record of his name was taken yeah as being present in this camp and of course having already been a prisoner Mm -hmm. and having escaped and got back home surely there would have been records or maybe actually there was enough confusion at the time in the in the the world of the germans with everything that was going on that they wouldn't have tied up that he'd previously been well he was held by the italians in the first escape and now he's been held by the germans and of course the italians had in september 1943 so a year beforehand signed an armistice so they weren't even on the side of the germans by this stage yeah so the records wouldn't have gone across perfectly plausible that there was no record whatsoever in the germans keeping that the anthony dean drummond had been a previous successful escaper right now, what makes this 13-day endurance even more impressive is, of course, he couldn't sit down. The cupboard wasn't big enough. It was difficult to sleep. He couldn't make a noise the entire time. He was getting cramped. And, of course, he had limited food and water because he couldn't be resupplied once he was back in there because, A, he had the key, and, B, he didn't want to draw attention to the fact that he was inside there. Mm. So he had to wait out for a full 13 days until he was confident that no new prisoners were coming back into the camp and that all of the rest had been cleared out. After those 13 days, he felt confident that this was now just the 9th Panzer Division's base. Just. Just. Just the 9th Panzer Division's base, yeah. Exactly. That he was, well, standing in a cupboard. Exactly. So on the 4th of October, he realised that the house was now not being used as a prisoner of war camp anymore. And so he opened the cupboard and made his way out into the room. Now, the room that this was in faced the garden, and so he opened the French windows and made his way out into the garden, where, of course, the perimeter of the garden was completely surrounded by guards. 
However, it was nighttime by the time he came out of the cupboard. He hid in some bushes under the window and under the cover of darkness made his way past the guards into a nearby orchard where he scrumped a large quantity of apples, which <laughs> after 13 days on bread and water, I don't altogether blame him for. Wow. I mean, God, the smell. Now, he does address that in his book. He says that as he wasn't eating very much, nothing much solid was coming out. So there was no concern over that. However, of course, he was still drinking water. And luckily, some of the plumbing pipes happened to go through the cupboard. And using a funnel, he was able to relieve himself sufficiently in order to... Stay relatively clean. Precisely. Yeah, because I would have thought much, much longer confinement, things like that, would start to actually have a health impact upon you. And of course, he'd be running out of water by the end of 13 days Mm. in the cupboard. So although he did take more than one uh, bottle of water in with him, still a limited amount, and of course he was rationing himself. Mm. But eventually you're going to run out, and 13 days sounds like a Offensive more than sufficient attention. time for him to run out of water. Yeah. So having got out of the cupboard, and then out of the house, and then out of the garden, and into the orchard, he's still in occupied Netherlands. Yeah. In Arnhem, on the outskirts of Arnhem to be precise. Finding himself on the outskirts of Arnhem, he made his way towards a house and went and hid in the outhouse. Now, he waited for the owner of the house to come to the outhouse and declared himself, and the owner was willing to help him, but only to a limited amount. Mm. And so he basically said, look, you can hide out here for the night, but you have to leave the next day. Which I don't think is as big a risk as you would necessarily thought, because obviously the Dutch were fairly, well, very friendly towards the Allies, and actually with quite a lot having happened recently with a large amount of liberation of parts of Holland, the Dutch must have realised that actually the Germans are on their way out, the Allies are more likely to be here sooner rather than later, and probably less of a risk. I do understand what you're saying, however, the house where he was staying was knocked up by the Germans, and so they were clearly aware that there was an Allied serviceman on the run in the area. Oh. And they even searched the outhouse that he was in. They must have thought that there would be a clear-up operation still going on because so many had been dropped. They weren't necessarily looking for him because he's obviously been hidden in a cupboard and they probably didn't know he was there. So the owner of the house's main concern was actually that he'd be given away by the children in the, in the vicinity. Mm-hmm. Not because he particularly felt that the children themselves were particularly Nazi sympathisers, but more just because young children don't particularly have a great deal of discretion. Can easily give away... That they saw somebody in... Saw some Somebody in, yeah, exactly, in uniform, or just accidentally mention it in within hearing of German troops. Yeah. Now, this is where it does get quite interesting, because when he first entered the outhouse, he noticed in the loft of the outhouse that there was hay bales up there. I've lost count of the number of escapes where I've heard POWs heading up into the hay bales of a loft or a barn and bedding down for the night. Yeah. He avoids that purposefully, knowing full well that if there was a search that is the first place they would go. So instead, he actually hides under a pile of sacks in the corner, pulls the sacks over him, and the Germans, while they were searching the outhouse, did go up into the loft, did search the hay bales, and completely ignored the pile of sacks in the corner. However, having been ransacked by the German troops, who you would have thought at this stage would have had better things to do than searching for a single prisoner of war while market gardens ongoing. But nonetheless, uh, having been ransacked by the German troops, the owner of this house he says, look, I'm happy to help, but you're moving on. And so that night he does precisely that and he says, I walked northeast for about two miles and then approached the building where I was given help. I was moved later that evening to, a, to another house where I remained until the 10th of October when I was taken to another house in Velp. I remained there until the 21st of October. He was there for quite a while, but that's actually because he contracted bronchitis during this stay. He was nursed back to health by an elderly couple. 
So on the morning of the 22nd of October, he and three others were taken by car to a wood near a place called Rankham, which is not far from Arnhem and is on the River Rhine itself. Right. And it was from here that he was to be evacuated back across the Rhine to Allied lines as part of Operation Pegasus. Well, I'm not aware of Operation Pegasus, was that? No, it's not a particularly famous one, but it is an interesting one. Operation Pegasus was a military operation to evacuate over 120 Allied servicemen who had got trapped behind enemy lines. Now, I have heard different numbers being bandied around, some as much as 140. I'm confident in saying it's over 120. Mm-hmm. So the operation itself took place on the night of the 22nd to the 23rd of October 1944. So this was a combined effort between the Allied forces and British intelligence who were on the south side of the Rhine. Right. And Dutch resistance who were, of course, on the occupied north side of the Rhine. Yeah. The intelligence efforts were led by Airy Neve. Oh, we know that name. We do indeed, of Colditz escape fame. So after Colditz, and we'll go into more detail another time, but after Colditz he joined British military intelligence and was assisting on prisoner war escapes. Brilliant. He is now in October 1944 in Netherlands, and it was Neve who had been in contact with the Dutch resistance to coordinate these efforts. Now the leader of the local resistance cell was a gentleman called Pete Cruyff. And he'd been coordinating the organisation of the Allied servicemen into safe houses on the occupied side and had been gathering them all together and moving them around so that they were progressively getting bigger and bigger but nearer and nearer. The pick-up point. The pick-up point, exactly. Now, this is no mean feat given that he was located quite close to the front line at this stage. So getting them all to gather together and filter through and reach the pick-up point was quite a major effort in and of itself. Brigadier Lathbury and Major Digby Tatham Water were the effective SBOs of the Allied troops on the occupied side, and they set up a brigade HQ in hiding, and it was them who made contact with the Allied forces in Nijmegen. Right. Lieutenant Colonel David Doby coordinated the efforts from the front, recruiting the United States 101st Airborne Division to assist with the evacuation. Now, for those who are familiar with the 101st Airborne Division, they are, of course, the subject matter of Band of Brothers. Operation Pegasus features in Band of Brothers in Episode 5, and in actual fact, Lieutenant Colonel David Doby is a character that is named in this episode. And just in case listeners haven't listened to Series 1, Dave is a massive... No, is massive a big enough word? Huge Band of Brothers fan. Yeah. You obsessive? Might, <laughs> obsessive and of Band of Brothers. I, how many times you have seen it is probably countless. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we've got all the key players. So we've got Aaron Eve coordinating the intelligence. We've got Pete Croft coordinating the Dutch resistance. We've got Lathbury and Tatham Water coordinating the Allied servicemen on the occupied side. And we've got Lieutenant Colonel David Doby coordinating the Allied troops attempting to rescue them. These are all the key players in this operation. Now, the location of the evacuation was chosen for near the village of Rankham, as I've said, where the Rhine is relatively narrow. Now, as I said, it's a big, powerful river. But at Rankham, it's about 150 to 200 metres wide at this point. So that's relatively narrow within the region we're talking about. And the river itself was the effect of no man's land between the south side, which was where the Allies were located, and the north side where the German troops were located. Now, for several nights preceding the operation, and on the night of the operation itself, tracer fire, patrols, that sort of thing were sent out in order to distract attention away from the operation's intended location. So they were purposely drawing the Germans' eye away from where they intended 
to proceed with the operation. On the 20th of October, the Germans very conveniently ordered all villages in the area to be evacuated by the 22nd, which is why they chose the night of the 22nd for the operation. So they were trying to maximise the confusion created by this order to evacuate. And by the 22nd, the Dutch resistance had successfully gathered all the 120-plus Allied servicemen to be evacuated into this area. And at 9pm that night, they began moving down towards the riverbank from their gathering point, and they reached the riverbank around about midnight. Once they reached the crossing point, they signaled with their torches a V for victory in Morse code, which was the signal for the boats to cross and collect them from the south side to the north side. And over the next 90 minutes, they succeeded in evacuating all bar one who was recaptured, as well as all of the forces who had been sent to evacuate the troops. Wow. Once back on the Allied-held South Bank, they were taken first to a farmhouse where Neve had set up his HQ, before being taken to Nijmegen for an almighty party with Dobie and 101st. I bet. Which also features in Band of Brothers. And the next day, Dean Drummond was taken to Eindhoven from where he was flown back to the UK on the same day and actually landed back at the same airbase at Barkston Heath in Lincolnshire from which he had flown out as part of Market Garden six weeks previously. Wow. So that is the second escape of Anthony Dean Drummond. Is it the only case we have of somebody who made two successful So So far as I'm aware, he is the only person in the entirety of the Second World War who made two successful escape attempts in returning back to the UK having been held by enemy troops. That's incredible. There are hundreds who made one. He is the only one who did it twice. Which I think arguably makes him potentially the greatest escaper of the entire war. Yeah. Yeah. Which we just had to feature. Of course we did. Now, at last, we can touch on his post-escape career. Mm. So post-war, he continued in the armed forces and he was commanding 22 SAS in Malaya and then in Amman, uh, where he won the, the DSO, but I didn't manage to find what the citation was for, which annoyed me. But we then know he was uh, promoted to Brigadier in the 44th Parachute Brigade, uh, taking over from John Frost. Right, okay. So John Frost was the, at that point, colonel who led the attack on Arnhem Bridge. And today, the bridge is actually named John Frost Bridge. Oh. And he is played by Anthony Hopkins in The Bridge Too Far. Right. So that is John Frost. Okay, so another good film link into, Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> into there. And so he then eventually retired from the armed forces in 1971 and he held a civilian directorship of a, of a company for, for a further eight years till he retired properly. However, I wish I could have brought more to this episode <laughs> about this man because uh, I knew very little of him. And it's really, really frustrating for me because I met this man. Okay. And I met this man not that many years ago. Okay. He has passed away since, so he has, there yeah. was there was some time. However, I knew him as Tony Dean Drummond. Okay. shortened version of, of Anthony Dean Drummond. Now, in the 1960s, whilst he was still serving, he formed the Army Gliding Club. Mm-hmm. And he moved that from Odium, where he formed it, across to Lasham. Lasham being one of the main gliding sites in the UK. Well, for about 20 years, gliding was one of my biggest hobbies. Mm-hmm. And he continued to fly from Lasham. Now, I recall meeting this old man at one of the big gliding competitions at Lasham. Okay. And I never, ever got a chance to talk to him about it, because I knew 
him purely as an absolutely fantastic competitive gliding pilot. He'd flown in world championships representing Great Britain. He was a national champion, wasn't he? He was a national champion, but he flew in the world championships. Well. I think he mm-hmm. flew in four or five world championships and he was right up there with the Philip Wills and the Nick Goodharts and all these names that I'd grown up with whilst I was learning to glide and reading all these old magazines. And I remember meeting him at Lasham as Tony Dean Drummond, this world championship glider pilot from 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. and not as Tony Dean Drummond, the escaper who escaped twice from, from Germany. Or CEO of the SAS. Or serious, yes. He was just a lovely guy who sat in the canteen at Lasham. Fantastic. And I could have learned so much from him. <laughs> <laughs> this is what's really annoying, because he sadly, I mean, he, he lived on, he passed away in December 2012, and mm-hmm. I remember reading his obituary then and suddenly realising who it was. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when you brought this up on the list, I was like, Tony Dean Drummond. Oh, my word. I actually met somebody who is our subject matter from this. So frustrating when these opportunities pass, which is why we have to remember this and grab all this information when we can. Absolutely. But equally, it's fantastic you got to meet him. Yeah. And there is one other thing I think it's worth covering as well, which, and I have mentioned it a couple of times, which is that he actually wrote a book. In fact, he wrote a couple of books, two specifically on his escape attempts. The first is called Return Ticket, and the second is called Arrows of Fortune. Now, Return Ticket was uh, written and published in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And while it's a very enjoyable read, I think it's only fair to say that it is a product of its time. And there is some... I see. ...fruitier language that perhaps would not pass the editorial these days. However, there was a follow-up to Return Ticket. And he actually published another book in the early 90s, which is called Arrows of Fortune. Now, in many ways it benefits from being published nearly 40 years later in that he was able to build upon a lot of the historical research that had taken place over those four decades. So there's more detail on the battles, there's more detail on the context around which he was operating. Some more detail on his family as well, because he was married during this time and he was away for the birth of his first child. And of course it also benefits from the fact that being published in the 90s rather than the 50s that there is actually a post-war career to write about, because mm-hmm. much of what was to happen after the publishing of Return Ticket had of course not happened yet. Of course. So there is more detail on his post-war career as well. There are two books that have been published by Anthony Dean Drummond and anyone who's interested in learning more about his escape efforts, his life, his career, yeah. there, there's plenty to choose from and I'd encourage anyone to go out and find a copy of his books and give it a read because he is undoubtedly a fascinating man, an enormously impressive man in a number of different fields. And as we've said, potentially the greatest escape Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.